And now will you listen as Matthew and Phoebe Pitacala read our scripture message for today. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of the life. I made great works, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. Verses 9 to 11. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It really is wonderful to be joining each of you in worship today, in this moment, wherever that might be and whenever that might be. And, you know, if, if I have had the privilege of joining with you in any past discipleship or teaching setting, there's, there's probably a pretty good chance that I have mentioned to you that I am originally from Texas. I know, us Texans, that's what we do. We mention it a lot. But what you may not know, may, what I may not have shared with you, is I actually was born and raised in a small South Texas town by the name of Freer, F-R-E-E-R, Freer, Texas, 60 miles east of Laredo and 90 miles west of Corpus Christi, population in 1968 of just under 2,000. The metropolis of Freer today is just under 3,000. But my grandparents relocated from Freer in the early Texas oil boom days, and they settled there. And you know, this week, as I was preparing through this message, I was returned to Freer and my childhood through memories, particularly with my grandfather. So my grandfather, Daryl Holcomb, though no one ever knew him by Daryl, his nickname since he was a child was Hap, H-A-P, Hap Holcomb. He was given that name because he was perpetually happy and gregarious and quite a spirit. It was a nickname that suited him well throughout all of his life. And on many a summer morning, my younger brother and I, we would climb into our Pawpaw Haps pickup truck and we would begin the day. And it was always like clockwork. We would go for a visit to the home of Dutch and Marilee Barrington for coffee and a conversation. And then a few hours later, we would conclude our day over at Jimbo's Burgers for an ice cream. Just like clockwork, we could always count on the first and the last destination. The unknown 
the mystery to us each day was that time in between, between the Barringtons and Jimbo's. And it always seemed um, random. It seemed like this meandering wandering about town with no particular purpose. Now, we would stop at a few different homes along the way. Uh, we might stop in at the post office, never for the mail, go figure, but just to talk to folks as they came in or to speak with the postal workers. There would be visits by Freer Ironworks or Herbie's Grocery Store or the one car dealership in town, which was perfectly situated by the one traffic light in town. Again, just to talk shop and say hello. But here's the deal. Along the way, my brother and I would sit in on all these conversations, some of them very light, perhaps about the weather or the latest episode of MASH. Also conversations, though, that were very deep regarding personal struggles, family situations, health concerns, life, and often on death. We received valuable lessons and much practical advice. I mean, you know, like how to brand cattle or catch a rattlesnake. Memories, good ones, painful ones, were often shared in these various encounters. And for a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old, without any real understanding of the greater context, of the bigger picture of what was happening in each of these conversations, this was often confusing and complicated. Now, I grew older. Uh, I would say matured quite a bit in this overall perspective, and I came to realize how this time had allowed my grandfather and those around him to pass on these bite-sized nuggets of a lifetime of wisdom. He had exposed us intentionally to many of the realities of life and offered us the wonderful privilege of experiencing them in his presence. And certainly, it always came with the guarantee of ending on a high note, ice cream. Well, this morning, we arrive at the book of Ecclesiastes within our one-story walk-through-the-Bible year, uh, the series that we're currently teaching on. And if you're not familiar with this unique and some will say peculiar book of the Bible, I would like to suggest that Ecclesiastes and a journey through Ecclesiastes is not that much different than wandering around Freer, Texas with my grandfather. See, Ecclesiastes starts with this very basic, straightforward introduction, and it ends with this wonderful treat. But wow, the in-between. The in-between in Ecclesiastes will meander through the reflections and through the experiences of one man's lifetime of wisdom. It will appear to stray off course occasionally, and it will prompt many questions, complications, complexities that aren't resolved without a larger often more mature perspective and understanding of the greater context of God's whole word. Now, there are some pleasant stops along the way, some lighter conversation, but mostly the conversations in Ecclesiastes are deep. They're about the realities of injustice, of life itself, and often about death. See, Ecclesiastes is brutally honest and since we, all of us in our human nature, we tend to gravitate to the more feel-good passages of Scripture, we often quickly pass over this wonderfully inspired perspective of hope and just uh, good news, a good treat. And in fact, a lot of commentators will say what I read was that uh, today Ecclesiastes is thought to be the least taught book of the Bible of the modern church. And that's really a shame. Because at the end of the day, 
the word of Ecclesiastes is truly intended to make believers think and prayerfully make thinkers believe. And so the good news today is that we're not going to pass over Ecclesiastes. And I'm certain that if you and I will have a commitment to hang on for that treat at the end, we will all grow in our loving and our learning and our living out of God's word. So if we got that commitment, let's go. Let's, let's dig in. Let's begin with a brief overview of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, first and foremost, are the words recorded of King Solomon. Now, we've, we've visited with King Solomon here uh, several times now within our one story. We began back in 1 Kings and then in recent wo- uh, weeks with the books of wisdom. Now, there's, there's Song of Solomon. It's a book about intimacy, romance, and love. And it was written by the young Solomon, who was full of zeal for God and passion for life. And by the way, Song of Solomon, next week, Pastor Brian, thankfully, is going to help us carefully navigate the Song of Solomon. Then we get to the book of Proverbs. Solomon has matured. It's at the height of his literary output, his middle age years, before he begins to turn his heart, divide his heart in favor of the pursuit of worldly favor and fortune. And now, with at least a partial return to the faith of his youth, Solomon, in his final years, an elderly, aged Solomon, under the influence of God's divine authorship, will contribute this book of Ecclesiastes. So hopefully that's perspective on when Solomon is writing this. And and what a fascinating book it is. The book of Ecclesiastes is a book of philosophy. It's the Bible's book of philosophy. It asks the question that most of the rest of the Bible answers. Does life have meaning? Where do I find satisfaction in this world? What is my purpose? You may or may not be like me, but philosophy has never been a favorite subject area of mine, a favorite study. But one thing I've discovered through the book of Ecclesiastes is because of the universal nature of this question of meaning and purpose and significance and satisfaction, Ecclesiastes is especially relevant today. See, not only does it stand up against the great philosophers of history, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Descartes, but it opens our eyes and it guards our hearts from the prominent worldviews that we face today, secularism, materialism, hedonism. In short, it is the biblical philosophy countering the world's quest to find complete and lasting meaning in anything and everything other than God. Solomon's words, philosophical look at life and death. And then thirdly, and really importantly, please get this, Ecclesiastes is developed through the lens of a fallen world. As we read, one of the things we'll note is that Solomon's conclusions are based on the fact that sin separates us from the perfection of God's original garden relationship. Any worldly attempt to bridge that gap is utterly futile. It is impossible. And this view will support all of Solomon's theology and his guidance. It is the pain and the sorrow and the cursed ground and the sweat and the blood and the tears and the ashes to ashes and the death is unavoidable, inevitable backdrop to this book. In fact, I've started to think that the most logical place to read Ecclesiastes within the entire narrative of Scripture 
is right after Adam and Eve fall in Genesis 3. We have humanity sins. God removes his presence. What is this going to look like? It looks like Ecclesiastes. So with that in mind, let's dig in. Okay, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, if you have your Bible, Ecclesiastes, the books of wisdom, right after the Psalms and Proverbs, middle of your book, take a right just a bit. Verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, not only do we get the authorship proposal here of Solomon, but even more importantly, this is an emphasis on Solomon as preacher, or as some of your translations might say, teacher. This is key because the word here in Hebrew is kohileth, kohileth, and that means the one who assembles a congregation or the one who speaks before an assembly. And it's important because what we're given here is a picture that, that we have King Solomon, who is still king, but he is symbolically taking off his crown and he is sitting it aside. He's removing the crown for this moment of instruction because he wants to instruct us, not rule over us. He's not demanding an audience because he's the monarch, but he's standing before us and before his assembly to plead that the wisdom he is going to impart, they will grasp and they will apply. And so what is this wisdom? This is who's here, our speaker. So preacher Solomon will speak. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanities. Is vanity. Solomon looks back over his life, and then he looks back over the congregation, the assembly, and in essence, he says, all right, folks, the big idea for today's lesson is that everything is vanity or meaningless. I want to make this clear right up front so you know where I'm going with it. And I think with that sort of introduction, uh, he's made himself pretty clear. You know, and, and this is this Hebrew word. I think we visited it before when we were in, uh, looking at the Greek translation of it in the Apostle James' uh, book, his epistle. Uh, but the word is havel. It's transliterated H-E-V-E-L, havel. And it's best understood as meaningless or worthlessness, worthless. Um, and one of the things he does, hang with me, this is good, he uses this superlative construct. And all I mean by that, that's a grammatical word that means he says vanity of vanities. Meaning that he is describing something to the highest degree. And you've possibly seen this before. We think about the, the tabernacle or the temple, and often it's spoken to as the holy of holies, the innermost part of it. It is the most holy place. Solomon says, not only am I telling you that everything is meaningless, it is the most meaningless to the highest degree. So he stands before and he says, meaningless, meaningless to the highest degree, all is meaningless. Again, wow, what a way to grab an audience. And I have to imagine that anyone who heard those words, just as you and I might when we read them, our first response is, really? All things, Solomon? Everything? Our work, meaningless. Our friendships, vanity. Our recreation, worthless. Our wealth and possessions, havel. When I say all, I mean all. The words of Solomon. All right. <laughs> we are two verses in. And if we stopped right there, we would think that Solomon was either deeply depressed or highly delusional. It's almost like I read it and I want to say, okay, Preacher Solomon, it's going to be okay. 
It's all going to work out. Let me, how about a hug, right? But we don't. Thankfully, we move on because there is this genius method to Solomon's madness here. And for the next 12 chapters, he is going to build a case for Havel against all of these areas of life and death and the way we exist. He's going to use this word 38 times. That's a lot of worthlessness. And we'll say, Preacher Solomon, why is everything worthless? Before we see his answer, I really do think there's one little thing we need to interject here. And that is that this Havel, this meaningless, it was never and it is never a statement of implied value or worth of individuals, of you and I. The value of the person is never part of this conversation. As image bearers of, cre- of, of the Creator, we are invaluable, priceless to God, and we should be to one another as well. So please, you'll, this will make sense as we move on, but let's just make sure we're aware of that to start off. All right, so please note, he begins his, his defense in verses 3 through 7. What does man gain by all the toil or work or labor or efforts at which he toils under the sun? A generation comes, a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, it goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Here's why life is meaningless, because for all of our labor, when we die, nothing has really changed. The world goes on as it always has. Creation testifies to this circular pattern of generations coming, generations going. We die and there is no true profit or lasting gain from all of the hours we put in. It's I'm done, tag, you're it, I'm gone. It's like Solomon is saying, folks, assembly, life is not a box of chocolates. Life is a treadmill. See, a generation comes in and they run with all the gusto of that old man down at the Y on the treadmill. When all said and done with him, he didn't go anywhere. He's sweaty, he's smelly, his heart rate's up a little bit, but he didn't go anywhere. And that's similar to creation's daily routine. Sun goes up and down, the winds go around, the streams, the rivers continue to the sea, but they never fill up the ocean. And just not just our vocations and our careers that we continue on these treadmills, but really he means all efforts in life. Think about our life. I mean, I did laundry last night. Guess what? Next Saturday night? Yeah, clothes are dirty. I mowed yesterday. Well, check that. Christy mowed yesterday. My wife mowed yesterday. Just like we mowed the week before and the week before. This afternoon, we'll pay bills. Lord willing, next month, same thing happens over and over and over. It's like the river to the sea, day after day after day after day. This is Solomon's point. And before, uh, well, I should say this too. Before you turn to your spouse and say, look, honey, I know the grass needs mowing, but yeah, it seems like the Bible says it's really not worth it. Here we need to note there are three critical The most important words, if Havel is the theme word of this book, these are the most important words. They are the words to uh, interpreting the entire book of Ecclesiastes. If we look at verse 3 again, basically, what do we gain from all of our work in which we work? He could have put a period there. 
That would make sense. What do we gain from all the work that we work? But he doesn't. He qualifies it. Solomon says, from all of the work that we work under the sun. Under the sun will be used 30 times throughout the rest of this book. And it does not mean for all of the work that is done in the fields or all of the work uh, that has done uh, outside. It does not mean that if you are someone who works on the roads or you are a lifeguard at the beach, that that's the work he's talking about. See, that assembled congregation and Solomon would have known very clearly that when he qualified this as under the sun, it was the way of distinguishing between that which is of the world under the sun, absent God's presence, versus that which is heavenly, beyond the sun, inclusive of God's presence. And this is really critical. Please don't miss this. The entirety of Ecclesiastes is based on the idea that under the sun... Apart from God, our work, our recreation, our relationships, our possessions, they are all without purpose. And he continues to speak to this. We read in verse 8 here. All things are full of weariness, exhaustion. I mean, just as we read that last passage, right, we're exhausted. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not never satisfied with seeing and the ear is never satisfying with hearing enough it's exhausting the pursuit of genuine satisfaction under the sun it begins you know it begins monday morning with the with the alarm clock right we hop on the treadmill we shower we get dressed we go by starbucks we go to work we go to lunch we go back to work we think about going to the gym probably not tonight we go home for dinner we have tv whatever it is we go to bed and if that doesn't exactly describe your typical non-shelter-in-place day, I'm sure you find similar patterns in your own schedules. And then guess what? Tuesday morning, wake up and repeat. We truly are much like the movie Groundhog Day than we really like to admit, aren't we? We chase this greater and greater satisfaction under the sun with more and more treadmill only to find less and less satisfaction and more and more exhaustion. It fails to satisfy what we truly crave. That's what Solomon is imparting. But we can't stop craving. It's this cycle of insanity. Further, he goes on. This is beautiful. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing for which can be said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. Again, a philosophical twist to Solomon's words here. It's a very thought-provoking question, right? An observation. Of course there are new things, right? For us, many of us, there are maybe too many new things each day. But Solomon's making this profound argument that we like to deceive ourselves by adding the latest trinkets or gadgets or personal achievements and accomplishments to our lives as an attempt to enhance our satisfaction, our purpose, our meaning. But the reality is, he says that's how it's always been. Now these trinkets and gadgets and accomplishments may have more color in them, they may have more bling to them. We may do something differently or faster than past generations. But there is nothing new about our use of shiny objects and personal accomplishments to try and create purpose and meaning in our life. It's that pursuit 
those desires, the basic mechanics of how the world and its people are motivated under the sun, that's not new. And I think, surely, as I think about it, I, you probably have seen this play out in your own life. I, I know I have a new job, clothes, a new car. Whatever it is, it brings this weird excitement to your life, right? It changes things. I mean, and have you ever thought about how odd that is? How odd it is that a, a thing or an achievement can actually uh, make you feel better. It has an emotional effect on you, almost like it validates existence or affirms identity. And all the while, Ecclesiastes and Solomon are just shouting at us, give me a break. Nothing has changed. You just have more stuff. And see, Solomon should know, as we saw in the passage that Matthew and Phoebe read for us earlier, he had everything. He spent so much time pursuing new things and new achievements under the sun, and they did not bring him satisfaction. In fact, the Bible tells us they brought him a lot of grief. And for certain, they separated him. They drew him away from his relationship with God. And Solomon, interestingly, we can't miss this either. He goes on to say there are good things under the sun, and it's okay to enjoy them. Eat, drink, and be merry. Enjoy the time with friends, the blessings, the things, the recreation, the leisure. Enjoy them for what they are. Don't count on them to fully satisfy us or provide lasting purpose. He's been there, done that more than any of us can ever imagine with wealth and possessions and the accolades. And yet he's here to testify before the assembly that it was ultimately unsatisfying Havel. You know, maybe, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, that, that makes sense, but really it makes sense for other people and not me. See, I'm going to do such a great job in business. I'm going to do a, such a great job raising my family and in the community that my accomplishments will change the world. And my name will be known forever, never forgotten of bringing something new to this world that we live. All right, hold that thought. Let's examine one final observation of Solomon. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. In other words, to those of us who think we will be remembered for our stuff or our, our accomplishments for centuries to come, Solomon says, mm, no, you and I are going to die and no one's going to remember us. Is that true of everyone? Well, pretty much. And here's the perspective. According to the Population Reference Bureau, there have been approximately 108 billion people walk this earth for the last 4,000 years. 108 billion people. And the fact that most of us can't recall or name more than a few dozen who were born over 200 years ago, that's pretty much Solomon's point. And in fact, sitting, sitting right there where you are, if, you'll just, if you're with some others, if you're with your family, or if you're just sitting there with yourself this morning, I want you to do something for me. I want you to name your great-great-grandparents. You had 16 of them. Eight great-great-grandfathers and eight great-great-grandmothers. You had 16 of them. And that's not the chart right now. That's great. Thank you. I want you to name them. How many? It's just four generations ago. There were some wonderful people. They did some great stuff. 
They're very kind. They did wonderful things raising their family. They eventually met, and here you are. It's like Mark Twain once said, the world will lament your death for an hour and forget you forever. Like Twain, Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, he is dealing with hashtag reality and not hashtag feel good. This is the brutally honest assessment of the inspired words of Ecclesiastes. There is no remembrance of our former things, so if we put our stock into that being our life pursuit, we will be disappointed. So how, how are we doing right now? How are we sitting before this great, wonderful, inspiring sunshine of a message? Who's ready for ice cream over at Jimbo's? Well, let's, let's head that direction right now. See, for the next 12 chapters, Ecclesiastes... And Solomon will insert a few encouraging words. For everything there is a season. Great poem. The birds put some music to it. Three-stranded chord passage. That's fantastic. Some practical advice. But mostly, when we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, these next 12 chapters, we're going to find the same under the sun, vanity of vanities logic. It's going to be applied to all of these other areas that Solomon has experienced. He's going to methodically walk through them and just tear them down as far as our meaning and our purpose in them. And as I read through these, and I read through the book of Ecclesiastes, the lessons of the preacher, there is actually one thing that keeps coming to my mind. Chocolate Easter bunnies. Bet you didn't expect that. You know the ones, right? They always look so good. It's like the grand prize in the basket. And even though I should have learned my lesson by now, to this day, I am still tempted by how awesome this big old hunk of chocolate looks. How awesome it's going to be. Until, until I bite into it and I discover what? All together. It's hollow. That's right. These beautifully decorative walls of this wonderful looking bunny. Thin walls, usually, of unsatisfying chocolate. They disguise this hollow center. And that's the lesson of Solomon. He says, listen, congregation, I've tried all types of chocolate bunnies. I've tried the good ones over at Godiva's. And I've tried the not-so-premium ones over at Walgreens. I've tried biting off the ear first. And I've tried biting elsewhere on that, that rabbit. And every single time, I found that chasing the world and the pursuits of those possessions and, and fame and fortune was like chasing the wind. It was impossible. It was empty. It was hollow. It never fully satisfied. I should have learned my lesson. And now I can pass along that lesson. And the lesson is chapter 12, verse 13. Solomon concludes this entire defense. And he says, in the end... The end of the matter, when all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is full satisfaction, complete meaning, full purpose, significance. The bottom line, at the end of the day, everything that we've looked at has been tested and tasted. It's been evaluated and heard. The meaning of life, or better yet, what brings meaning to my life is to revere God, to worship God, to be in relationship with God, and to follow Him in obedience. There is no greater satisfaction than that. 
This is the only formula that brings true, complete, eternal significance to our lives. To do this now is to live life beyond the sun. Meaningful, satisfying. And really, this is the same conclusion, isn't it, that we saw in Job in some of the Psalms. We saw in Proverbs. Fear God, walk according to His will for our lives. That's the path to wisdom and purpose. And and here's the thing. When we compare ourselves to the congregation that day before Solomon, we are at such an advantage. And here's why we have it better than those folks in that assembly. See, we live on the empty tomb side of Jesus and the cross. That means the message of Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 It is amplified in us and through us. Where life under the sun is always meaningless, life beyond the sun or in and through the sun, S-O-N, is always meaningful. Under the sun, nothing matters. Beyond the sun, every single thing, every single day matters. Under the sun, we exist on the treadmill. Beyond the sun, we live out the most awesome promise of John 10 10 I Jesus came that you might have life and you might have it abundantly Jesus has come that we can have life to the greatest extent of our created purpose it is because he came because he lived because he died he was buried and he rose again and because he lives today that life is worth the living it always comes back to the empty tomb for the great, great hope that we have. And so with this perspective, all of life has meaning. And that changes everything. See, our money, our possessions, our stuff, they're no longer our master. They're no longer our status symbol. They're just stuff. We use it for recreation, leisure, fishing poles. Fine, enjoy it. We buy a house if we need it. A car, we give it away. Regardless, it doesn't own us. We don't seek it in order to find purpose or meaning, and we don't lose our identity if we lose it. Work, vocation, schools, home, raising a family, being in the community, that's no longer a mile marker on the daily circuit. It's what the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15 as being work of the Lord, abounding in that work, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It is no longer Havel. It's the act of sharing and showing the gospel, of encouraging in the name of Jesus, living and serving throughout the day in the most Christ-like of ways. That's our desire. With kindness and compassion, without grumbling and complaining, where everything we do is as unto the Lord. It's never Havel. And there is now something new under the sun. We would see in Scripture that we are a new creation in Christ. And that's the great hope. That's the only hope that transforms this otherwise bitter and depressing and sad reality of Ecclesiastes into the glorious, life-giving, celebratory reality that our labor is no more in vain. That's the fear and worship and reverence of God and the obedience to follow and be in relation with Him. See, in the application today, the conclusion as we wrap up, it's as straightforward as the book of Ecclesiastes itself. If you are someone who is not yet a follower of Jesus, 
you should know that what happened on that cross gives you access to the most meaningful and purpose-filled life imaginable. It's a life that far outseeds all the world's promises and the same old trinkets and pleasures. And we'd love to have you contact us. Uh, you can use the Hey, I'm Here card online if you'd like us to uh, conversation or uh, information. Please do that. Please consider that. Please consider life beyond the sun. And if you are a follower of Jesus, the application is this. The response to Ecclesiastes is to honestly confront and evaluate where it is that we are finding purpose and meaning. Is it in our relationship with the Lord or is it on the world's treadmill? Have we invited God into all aspects of our life that we might experience the John 10.10 abundancy of life, of joy-filled life? as he's promised. Are you and I living life beyond the sun? Ecclesiastes. Sobering. Challenging. Convicting. Yes. Yes and yes. Life-giving. Liberating. Rewarding. Absolutely. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we just are so grateful that you have provided the whole counsel of your word. We're grateful that you have inspired, preserved, that you have revealed yourself, Lord, through this book this morning of Ecclesiastes, Lord. We pray that it is our desire to find significance and meaning and purpose in you alone. Lord, we pray that your joy, your comfort, your peace, and confidence in you Lord, that it would shine through us every day to the world around us. That it would be contagious in a world that is often immune to seeking you. And Lord, above all this, may we prayerfully, expectantly, anxiously wake each new morning to live life beyond the sun. Lord, we pray this all in your name. Amen.